All right, Philippians chapter 3, or 4 actually, we're into chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 verse 1 is where we're going to be this morning, if you want to turn there with me. Uh, you know, in the past few weeks I've told you how uh, really amazing my sister is, but I have to tell you also, sometimes she wasn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, overall, yes, but, but there were moments when she wasn't at all, right? And we had some pretty significant conflicts because she's uh, three and a half years older than I am, which means I was always the victim, Right? I know. I was always the underdog, always the victim. I was always trying to figure out strategies to kind of balance out the power structure in my, in my family. And, you know, if, if you are not the oldest in your family, right, you completely understand what I'm talking about right now, right? Boss, 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 right? And if you're an oldest child, right now you're feeling deeply misunderstood and defensive <laughs> because you were always right growing up, right? No. So we had conflict. And um, when Tristan and I first got married, she said, She's, she found out, you know, that my sister and I would fight from time to time. And she's like, really? Like, really? Kids raised in Christian homes with godly parents fight? Are you serious? I'm just baffling to her. Right, and then we had our own kids. So, oh, okay. Right? I get it. We're, we're born to fight. We're born for conflict. Remember the first sin after Adam and Eve took the fruit, they were cast out of the garden, and then there was this little sibling rivalry that happened that ended in murder within the family. Right? There's conflict inside the family. So we shouldn't be surprised that there's also frequently conflict inside the family of God. Uh, Tom Rayner, who's a Christian author and uh, scholar, he, he did a little poll a few years back, and he asked some of his readers if they would write to him about church conflicts that they had experienced, right? And he, he created a little list. He created 25. I'm sure there were many more on his list. But I want to just share uh, a few of those with you. Uh, first, one of the conflicts that was reported is there was a church that got in an argument over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. So I read that, I'm like, well, just give it a few years and that'll take care of itself. <laughs> oh, that's horrible, Brian. I just... Just telling you what kind of goes on sometimes, right? All right. Uh, there was another one. There was a uh, church got an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. <laughs> now, another church, uh, they had a, uh, somebody started a petition going around to make sure that all of the church staff were clean shaven. Now, here's the next one. I want you to see if you, you catch the irony in this. Um, there's a church that got an argument over which picture of Jesus to hang in the foyer. And whether or not Jesus should be clean-shaven, I don't know, right? I mean, I'm just guessing that any of their options, Jesus had a beard. At least every time I've seen a photograph of him, he had a beard. Uh, someone uh, bought cran grape juice instead of plain grape juice for communion, and that created quite an argument. You know, imagine if they put wine in. Whoa, well, yeah, then we'd really get after it. Okay, uh, you know, similarly, Folgers or Starbucks. The church got an argument over Folgers or Starbucks. They bought a, a, a different thing, not Starbucks, but another dark roast, and people left the church over that. Um, there's a, a, a major discussion began and then an argument over what type of green beans should be ch- served at the church potluck, and all the kids said, none, right? None, <laughs> right? Don't, let's not even have potlucks at all there, right? They're so scary. They're so scary. Uh, again, back on the potluck theme, should the church allow deviled eggs at the potluck? <laughs> should the church call their meal a potluck or a pot blessing because they were Calvinist? 
Hey, right, we can fight over anything. I'm serious. These were actually, the, the list he collected were, were things people in the church had actually argued about. We can pick a fight over anything. Absolutely anything. Conflict is inevitable. It's inevitable in the family. It's inevitable in the family of God. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a, a specific conflict in the Philippian church. And what's interesting about this one is that Paul names names. Right? Paul probably heard of thousands of conflicts that people wanted to talk to him about. But he rarely named names. And so I've always wondered, you know, why, why is that the case? Why in this particular occasion did he name names? And I have a theory. My theory is this. If we think back about the book of Philippians we've been studying all semester, what the, what's the big idea? Well, the big idea is this. He's grateful for their participation in the gospel. It's a missionary prayer letter. And Paul is saying, thank you that you have participated in the gospel, right? Thank you that when I came to you and I preached the gospel to you, you not only received it, but you realized this is an opportunity for us to partner in the gospel and to take the gospel to our community and to communities beyond. So they were a church that really got it. Right? The first church that really got it and understood and partnered with Paul in the gospel. And Paul says to them, thank you in every way. You have shared the gospel. You have made disciples. You have given me financially so I can plant more churches. And the power of their testimony has been that they've been unified in this. Right? So you see this consistent theme of unity throughout the book of Philippians. Paul talks about it over and over and over again because the power of their witness flows from their unity. They're all in. But that unity is somewhat under threat. That's why Paul keeps mentioning unity. The power of of their unity produces this powerful testimony, right? But when conflict goes unresolved, it creates dissension in the church. When conflict goes unresolved, it destroys the testimony of the church. So Paul says, we need to deal with that so that your testimony can remain powerful. We've got to deal with this issue of disunity in the church. So he calls that. He names, he names names. Now, conflict is inevitable. So what should set us apart as the body of Christ is not that we never have conflict. <laughs> it's just, that's fantasy. It just will not happen because we all exist after the fall. So what should set us apart is, is the, the frequency and intensity of our conflicts should diminish and our ability to resolve them and to reconcile our relationships and to restore peace should be a testimony to those who are watching the family of God that really is a different family not that that we avoid all conflict or we never have conflict there's never a source of conflict no but that we reconcile it and we love and forgive one another right so this is a huge topic you've got 35 minutes or more more or less and I cannot cover every aspect of a conflict resolution and restoration of fellowship, that kind of thing, because you may be thinking of one particular conflict in your life and there are particular circumstances that I might not address. So I just want to give you some principles. Right, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4 and we're going to look at some principles for resolving conflict and restoring peace. So if you're not there already, please turn to Philippians 4. We're going to read together the first four verses. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, My joy and my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here's where I want to start. I want to start 
considering a, a four strategies for how we actually reduce conflict. How, how can we reduce the number and the intensity of the conflicts that we experience? And the first strategy is this, uh, anticipate the attack. Anticipate the attack. Read with me again verse 2. He says, I urge Yodia, I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of Christ. In other words, these two ladies were leaders in the church. They were well-known in the church. Paul says, these are two who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. They have been all in. If you look back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, this is a theme verse for the book. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Literally, he says, discharge your obligation as citizens. And later he'll say, you're citizens of heaven. You're in Philippi, but you're citizens in heaven. Therefore, discharge this obligation as citizens of heaven in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, right? You have been rescued, redeemed, justified, set apart by God's spirit. You've been, you've been filled. You have been redeemed and reconciled. You have the, the fruit of the gospel in your life. Now, live a life in a sense that balances the scales, that's appropriate to all of the blessings you've received. So that, Paul says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There's that word. He says striving together. It's soon athleo, athleting with, striving with, working out with, struggling with. Paul says these two ladies have been right at the very center, center of the struggle for the gospel, which tells us that anyone and everyone can be attacked. Anyone and everyone can be attacked. Expect it. Anticipate it. If we are set apart by the way that we love one another, what will Satan attack? Our love for one another. Right? If that's what sets apart the church, expect Satan to try to pull us apart and create conflicts and an unwillingness to forgive and reconcile. Then we will look just like the world. Uh, Buck Anderson told me a few years back, he said, someday I'm going to start a a consulting business. It's going to be a life coaching business. And he said, I'm going to name it uh, Managed Expectations. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's really clever. He's saying, you know, it's great to dream about what your life could be, should be, might become. He said, but also let's have reasonable expectations. He goes, I'm going to call it Managed Expectations. I think this is Managed Expectations. Church, Satan will attack you. So when you feel yourself being drawn into a conflict with a fellow believer, lift up your eyes and realize there's more to it than just what you think are the data points of the conflict or the argument you might line up. Realize there is always a spiritual component. So, when Jesus was about to go to the cross, he took three of his disciples with him. They're all in the garden. He says, you three come apart with me and let's pray. And he gives them two exhortations, right? He tells them to pray, but he also says, Watch. Just stay alert. Watch and pray. Wow, Peter, especially you, because Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, right? He is coming after all of you. Stay awake. Stay alert. Watch and pray. Don't just pray, but watch and pray. So what happened? Every time he came back, they were asleep. And so they failed. So church, here's my first warning exhortation to us. Expect that Satan will try to create disunity through conflict in our church, in our relationships. How do we reduce the number of attacks? 
Well, we can't reduce the number of attacks, but we anticipate them. We can diminish the intensity of those things because we realize this is actually a spiritual moment. It's not just happening here on earth. Second, adopt the mindset of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. That's how my translation has it. Live in harmony. Uh, it is uh, literally that um, mindset word. It's, it's, it occurs ten times in the book of Philippians. We have talked about it on multiple occasions. For Neo, it means uh, have this, this orientation, this fixation, this preoccupation. This is the mindset of Christ. So he's saying, let them have the same mindset with one another. What is that mindset? Well, again, he's, he's talked about it ten times in the book. The most vivid is over here in chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, have this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mindset that he wants Yodia and Syntyche to have is the mindset of Christ. And what is that? Well, let's, let's read this section again. Have this mindset in yourselves, which is also in Christ. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God th- something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What was the mindset of Christ? That he willingly surrendered all of his rights. He willingly surrendered. He surrendered all of the prerogatives of heaven. He didn't become less God. I would argue he actually demonstrated his deity because our God gives. And so he gave, right? He gave. He took on human flesh so that he could not just become humanity, but actually take the lowest form of humanity, that is a doulos or a slave, right? But he willingly did it. He willingly became a slave. He willingly said, I surrender my rights. I surrender my rights specifically. I surrender my right to defend myself. So he hung on the cross in the midst of what we could argue was the greatest cosmic conflict that's ever occurred, and he chose not to take up his rights. Don't you realize I could call 10,000 angels right now and crush the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, all, all of the forces on earth? I choose not to. Right? The mindset of Christ is a mindset of surrendering our rights to others. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11, it says this. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It's, it's not saying cover up sin. It's, saying a transgr- it's talking about a transgression that is, um, that, that is against me. I choose to overlook it. Solomon says that's the glory of a person. To surrender the right to defend self. Don't even pick it up. It comes to you, don't even pick it up. That's a huge mark of maturity. We choose not to defend. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. He says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Notice he acknowledges a wrong was suffered. There were, a wrong was suffered, but I didn't mark it down in the column. Right? That's the, it's literally an accounting term. I'm not keeping score of it. I didn't write it down. I didn't record it. I chose not to be offended. Can you imagine if, if that were the case? So I'm just not going to pick it up at all. How would you like to be remembered? 
in your life? Would you like to be remembered as uh, that person? You know, it's really kind of tricky to be around that person. It's like crunch, 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 right? I mean, the eggshells are everywhere. It's really difficult because they're so easily offended. Or would you like to be that person? So, you know, man, I just, I just can't, I can't offend Jerry. He's just, he's so tenderhearted, but he's also really thick-skinned. He just lets it go. He forgives and he forgives and he forgives. Wow, it's easy to be around. I would like to be remembered like that. Let me give you one uh, radical illustration of this. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7. Apparently there were lawsuits that were going back and forth, a believer against believer inside the Corinthian church. And Paul says this, he says, Actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Now that, that's, that's radical. He's saying, why not just let yourself be wrong and defrauded? Why? Because that will be better for the testimony of Christ in your community. So why don't you just let the, let the wrong go? Wow. Now, I'm not, I am not telling you that you should never go to a court of law. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Because I don't know all the mitigating circumstances, maybe in a, uh, something you've experienced. It might be that you need to, even against a brother, because you need to defend justice for, for others and not just for yourself. I don't, I don't know that. But I'm just saying, have you ever stopped to consider... Even in an extreme case like this, where you have a legitimate lawsuit against somebody that you would say, you know what, I'll drop it for the sake of the testimony of Christ. Wow. Sometimes you you do need to seek out justice. Sometimes the issues that you've been perpetrated against you are actually criminal. You've got to bring it forward. Or they're just so deep and consistent that you have to bring it up. But I would argue that most of the things that we pick up as conflict could actually be dropped. Right? Most of them. Most of them, uh, you say something or someone says something to you because you're tired or hungry, you're hangry, right? And just something pops off. I remember when, when uh, our kids were first born, right? They're first born and, and we're getting no sleep. And I reminded my wife, I said, remember that sleep deprivation is a form of torture. We have torturers that just came into our house. They're torturing us, right? And so we made a rule. We said, you know, for the next eight weeks, because that's what we read in the books, for the next eight, eight weeks, until our kids get a little bigger and can sleep through the night, they're going to torture us. So for the next eight weeks, we said, here's the phrase, nothing counts. Because I'm going to say things to you, I don't really mean it, I'm just being tortured right now. And you're going to say things to me, and I, you don't really mean it, you're just being tortured right now. But in eight weeks, or, or nine weeks, or ten weeks, our sanity will, will return and we'll be real humans again. And we will, we will we'll go, what was I thinking? What was I talking? Oh, you know... Really, you think about it, so many of our conflicts, if we just said, I'm not going to pick it up. That's the mindset of Christ, right? Paul says, maybe it's a lawsuit. Jesus hung on the cross being crucified and said, Father, I release them from the debt. Would you consider doing that for the sake of unity in the body of Christ and our testimony to the world? Third, focus on the mission Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. 
Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, if you have a pen, I want you to put quotation marks around this phrase. Quote, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. End quote. Paul is saying is, here's the ministry of reconciliation. We go around the world and we say, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How? Through Christ who reconciled us to himself and now he's given us this word of reconciliation which is the only hope for your personal life and the only hope for your family and the only hope for your community and the only hope for the world is if you're set right with God. Please be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We beg you to do this. The Philippian church was on that mission. They had been participants or fellowshippers in the gospel of Jesus, meaning they were proclaiming the truth. They were reconciling people to God. And when we have said, that's our mission, there's just less time to fight. <laughs> if, if you're committed to the mission, Mark, and I'm committed to the mission, and Luann, you're committed to the mission, and I'm committed to the mission, then we might have some really wonderful, lively discussions about the best way to execute the mission. But we're probably going to drop more of our petty conflicts because we're really into people in our community knowing Jesus Christ. So, Paul says, focus their attention again on the mission. Fourth strategy, fix your hope on the life to come. Turn back to Philippians again. And let's ramp back up. Let's get back into the context. Let's go back up into chapter 3, verse 20. And refresh our minds about the context that Paul is talking from here. Chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Philippi. We're on earth, but we're in the world. We're not of the world. We have a home. And it's amazing. And all things are set right in that place. Because that Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, he will return and he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Your name is in the book of life. If you believed in Jesus Christ, your name is in the book of life and it can never be scratched out. Your eternity is secure and it's perfect. And it's a place where there is no more conflict. And you have hope in that. Or maybe you don't. And this morning you need that hope because your life is filled with conflict. It chases you everywhere. And you need to know that there is peace. You only find it in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you. He is Prince of Peace. He's the ruler of peace. He's the one that can bring peace in your heart. Maybe there's trouble inside of you. And there's anguish and despair and dis- discouragement. And you need Jesus to speak and say, no, there really is hope, and hope is in me. And so I would encourage you this morning, if you want to know that you have eternity, that your name is written in that book of life, you want to know that you can experience peace peace with God, and he can begin to 
through the power of his spirit, build some peace even in your relationships here on earth. Just trust in Christ right now. Say, God, thank you for sending Jesus. I believe. I believe he is the one hope of reconciliation to you and with others. And if you and I are both fixing our hope on that, we will have peace. If we are looking for all of our satisfaction to come from this life, then anyone who gets in our way will be a source of conflict. Remember a couple weeks ago, we alluded to this verse in James. He describes trials like this. So what's the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You want life now. You want all of life now. You've got to have life now. And someone is getting in the way of you having all of life now. And that creates conflict. Why? Because you're not expecting that, you know what? You're going to have some really wonderful blessings here in this life. But they're going to be short term and they're going to be limited. Not going to be all that you want. But you, got, you have eternity. Right? But if I want all of it now, I'm going to be frustrated. Right? Because I'm going to have this scarcity mentality. Right? There's, there's just a, a, a small pie here, and if you take a big slice, then I'm going to have less of a slice. My slice will have to be smaller. Very, it's a scarcity mentality. Let, let me illustrate for you. Um, kind of put it in our cultural context, right? If, if you purchase a box at Kyle Field, then I can't. Right? Because there's only so many boxes at Kyle Field, right? So if you purchase one, I can't purchase one. Right? I know, I know it's, it's a little ridiculous because neither of us can purchase one, but... <laughs> There's only so many boxes, right? No, not true, right? We're Aggies. We know if we want more boxes, we'll just build a bigger stadium, right? Now you're going, is is he comparing Kyle Field to heaven? Only loosely, right? Only loosely. There's just this loose analogy here that I'm making. I'm saying that, that there is no scarcity in eternity with Jesus. And that is our hope. So I can get a little less angry when somebody slices into my pie. Reduce the conflicts. Reduce the intensity and the number of conflicts. Second, how do we restore peace? Right? How do we reconcile the relationships and restore peace? Because even if we can reduce the number, we still will have conflicts with others. So read with me again, chapter 4, verse 2. Let me give you a few thoughts. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. First principle is this. Uh, take the first step. This is actually unu- a little bit unusual Greek grammar in this verse because Paul repeats the uh, imperative. So normally, Paul would write it like this. I urge Yodi and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. But instead, he repeats the verb. And you go, oh, that's kind of a subtle observation, but it's really significant. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to be of one mind in the Lord. He doesn't urge just one or the other. In other words, Paul doesn't take sides. Paul doesn't assign blame. He says to each of them, initiate. You initiate. You're both in conflict. Initiate. You should initiate and you should initiate. Take the first step. Take the first step. Don't be passive. Don't be waiting. Initiate because that's, as we've said over and over and over again, that's the nature of the grace of God. God went first. While we were enemies, dead in our trespasses, couldn't move toward him, God moved toward us. So as you are in a conflict that is not being resolved, take the first step. Initiate. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, remember, uh, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Take the first step. Second, Rehearse your common ground 
I'm going to read these, passages, these verses again, 1 and 2 and verse 4, and see if you uh, notice the repeated phrase. He says, Therefore, my beloved, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia, I urge Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. They're all in the Lord. Right? Their names are in the book of life. Start with what you have in common. You have a shared salvation in Jesus Christ. You have a shared forgiveness that he purchased for all of you. You have a shared destiny. You're going to live with these people forever. I want to work it out, right? You have shared hope. You have a shared mission here on earth. You have all of these things in common. Start with that. Uh, years ago, when, when Tristan and I we used to uh, do some teaching on conflict resolution, we, we taught a thing we called it the rebuke sandwich. Right? So you got to get in there and kind of rebuke. Well, Start with uh, a compliment, and then the rebuke, and then another compliment, right? It's called it the rebuke sandwich. Now, I have a much better idea, right? I've thrown the rebuke sandwich away. And here's the new sandwich. The new sandwich is this. Um, I call it the relationship sandwich. Okay? The relationship sandwich is this. I start with reaffirming the relationship and its value to me. You are important to me. This relationship is important to me. We have this in common. We share this together. And I want this relationship not just to continue, I want it to get better, but it's not right now. Here's the meat of the moment. We're in conflict over this. This is how I understand it. And I want it resolved because you are important to me, and this relationship is important to me, and I don't want it just to continue. I want it to get better. Right? That's my relationship sandwich. I'm, I'm putting the meat of the conflict in between these two pieces of bread, which are a reminder that you are important to me. The relationship is important to me. I was talking to a guy uh, at the gym just this week, and he had to have this hard conversation. He's like, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. And I said, is this person important to you? He said, oh, really, really important. I said, try this out. It's like, wow. Next day he came back, he goes, it worked. <laughs> it worked. Right? Because people want to know that they're important to you. Right? And that gives confidence and assurance that's, that's context for working on the thing that's creating the conflict. Right? So start with what's shared. Start with the value of the relationship. Third, uh, keep it confidential. The situation in Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3, is in many respects already a failure. Everybody already knew about it. I mean, he could name the names because everybody in church already knew about this failure. Because these, these ladies are two leaders in the church, and it's gone public because somebody talked to somebody, right? And I go, oh man, ouch, right? I mean, there are just a few points in Paul's letters where I go, I'm glad that's not me. I'm glad I didn't live in the first century. I'm glad I didn't know Paul personally. I'm glad I didn't get written into one of his letters so that all of the church for 2,000 years reads my name in this context. And then we never read anything else, right? We don't know. Did they work it out? We don't know. Ah, I go, right? It's public already because it's spread. And here's the problem. Once it spreads, you've lost control of it. That's why James says the tongue is like a fire. It's this world of iniquity because fire starts here and then what happens? A spark goes, right? And that's, that's gossip. And then that spark starts its own thing. And it starts some other sparks. And people are getting brought in. And you know what? You might be part of that original fire of conflict and you work it out. And you pour water on it and it's all good. But it's gone. And these people don't know that you've worked it out or they don't have a context to work it out with others because they took sides. As soon as the spark went out, they took sides because you told somebody that you wanted to align with you in your opinion on this thing. 
And now it's gone. Right? The best thing that could have happened is Yodi and Sintiki each took the initiative and all of a sudden they said, hey, can I add, but I add, okay, you go first, right? I mean, they both, if they had come together and they're both initiating and they dealt with it, it never lands in the page of scripture. Probably it landed there because we just needed instruction and I feel sorry for them, but we probably needed them to have this thing publicly so we could have this moment and say, mm, don't do it like that, right? Don't, don't take it public. Keep it confidential, um, maybe you are on, you're on the outside of that conflict and somebody brings it to you. How do you respond? I mean, I would ask the question, am, am I a part of this conflict? Or am I a part of the solution to this conflict? Or are you just trying to align me with your position? Now, you say that a few times to a friend, they'll learn not to bring it to you. Right, not to bring it to you. Now, you can't always help when somebody brings it to you, but you can choose what you do with that information. So uh, my metaphor for this is I would say we need to be, all become um, gossip cul-de-sacs. Right? So it comes down, and there it dies. Right? A gossip cul-de-sac. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 says, He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. So again, he's not talking about you know, a, a sin per se, but he who conceals the transgression, right? He doesn't spread it. He's seeking love. He's seeking reconciliation. Yeah. Fourth, get help when necessary. So you've taken initiative. You've, you've uh, tried to rehearse the common ground. You've guarded it and just kept it in there, but it just, it's, it's, it's spreading. And you, you've got to have help because it needs to be reconciled. Uh, where do you go? Who's kind of, who's help do you choose? Uh, let me give you a few observations. The first, if we think about this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 about the lawsuits, uh, I think the principle there is if there's a conflict inside the body of Christ, to take, take it to somebody else inside the body of Christ. Don't go outside the body of Christ, right? Go to a believer. But go to a, a mature believer. Paul uh, takes the conflict outside, and he says to someone who he doesn't name, he says, indeed, my true companion... Uh, literally, it's like my yoke fellow. That is someone who is also in the game with him. He doesn't have to name this person because apparently the whole church knows this is our reconciler, right? This is a person who has the maturity to step into this. And so Paul says, hey, uh, my true companion, (laughs) you who are in the game with me and have this maturity and this wisdom, would you step in? So a believer, but a believer with maturity. And a couple marks of that uh, are, are first that that person is unbiased. Or has the capacity to be unbiased. Because again, normally if I want to pull somebody else in, I want to pull somebody else in who's really likely to agree with me. If you really want reconciliation, you need to pull somebody in who would say a hard word to you and a hard word to the other person. A person with that capacity. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 17 says this. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Right? In other words... (laughs) One comes along and goes, yeah, yeah, I get it. But then you ask some questions or the other person comes along and gives their story. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, right? So you may not be surprised, but a lot of people bring me lots of conflicts. I mean, it's not on my job description, actually. It's not a bullet point. So I should just say no, but it just happens, right? They just come through my door. And what I have learned is this, that once I have this side of the story and this side of the story, you go, well, now you have the truth, right, Brian? I go, nope, I don't. Now I have... Two versions, but that's all I have. And that really frustrates people when I say, now I have two versions. 
And the truth might be here or here or here, or the truth might actually be out there, and you're both nuts. Because <laughs> you're both so emotional about this thing that you're not seeing the reality of it at all, right? Now, I say all that so that fewer of you will bring me your conflicts. No, that's not at all. No, that, that just popped in my mind. Um, <laughs> What do you want in a person? If, you're, if it's a person who will genuinely help you reach resolution, reconciliation, a person who has the capacity to be unbiased. And then fourth, a person who obviously will be confidential. Proverbs 11, verse 13. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. It is a huge mark of maturity to be able to hear the story and hold the story. It's not your story to repeat. Is the person a believer, godly, mature, able to be unbiased and confidential? That's the kind of help you need to seek. Maybe no one has sought help, but what has to happen is someone needs to intervene. Paul's intervening in chapter 4. Right? The thing is going on, and everybody knows about it, but in, in the church in Philippi, no one has intervened yet, so Paul intervenes. He says, look... I'm intervening now. Please, on my behalf, as you read this letter publicly, ouch, I urge Yodia, and I urge Syntyche, and I recognize you're sitting on opposite sides of the room, <laughs> to be of one mind in Christ. In fact, true comrades sitting in the middle, would you bring them together? Would you be willing to intervene? And you know, sometimes God may call you to intervene. When do you do that? Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I heard this uh, proverb was quoted um, in the midst of a, a conflict. Someone was being asked to intervene in a conflict, and this proverb was quoted to him. He brought it to me. He said, like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Hmm. Really? Uh, should I intervene or should I not intervene? Well, that's the, that's the trick with proverbs, right? These are just principles, and you have to know, when do I apply this one? And when do I apply this one? So am I just walking by and grabbing a rabid dog by the ears? Ah, I can fix this. Ah, no, and you're going to get devoured, right? Or you're going to get rabies or whatever. No, when do I know? When do I know it is actually my conflict? Well, you know, if it's, if it's happening inside the body of Christ and you are part of the body of Christ, the family of God, and you have relational capital in this setting, then it may be that you're the best person. But you should definitely pray about it first. God, am I that person to intervene? Because if you know about it, others know about it. Maybe someone else is better to intervene. Maybe you need to nudge that person and say, I think that you're the right person to step in. Or maybe we're the right people together. Because this, this actually might be our problem. Because the relationship is damaging the unity of the church and consequently the witness of the church and the community. We have to deal with this thing. But I would say, be uh, really careful and pray, 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 because if they didn't ask you to intervene, there's probably going to be some significant resistance. And so you need to pray that hearts are soft and long for, in fact, the reconciliation that you're going to push inside this relationship. Right, so pray. Pray for God to give you wisdom. Should I intervene? Pray that God would prepare the hearts for your intervention. And then sixth principle, practice forgiveness. And I say practice because forgiveness is a skill that you just need to grow for the rest of your life. You, you will never perfect it, but you can practice it and get better and better and better and better. In fact, 
Um, when you are hurt or offended, uh, forgiveness isn't, we've talked about this many times, but forgiveness isn't a moment. Forgiveness is a, a moment and then another moment and another moment and another moment, right? And sometimes in any given day, it's like 12 times or 15 times or 20 times a moment. Or maybe it's stretched out to a day or every other day or every other week because every time it comes up, I choose not to hold that person accountable. Instead, I let God hold them accountable. Isaiah chapter 45, one of my favorite verses on forgiveness says this. I, even I, am the Lord. I'm the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, can, can God literally forget anything? No, right? He knows all things. He knows even all things that could be, not just what are. But he chooses not to hold us accountable because he's forgiven that debt in Christ. Right? And that's what we're called to do. Right? Can I literally forget the wrong done against me? No, forgive and forget is a silly phrase. It doesn't happen. But every time Satan throws it in my mind, I can choose not to hold accountable because I entrust justice to God. I go, God, you're better at getting justice. Your justice will be perfect. And I think there may be some need for justice here, but I trust you with that. And we remember that God can take evil and actually make it for good in my life and the other person's. And I also remember that God has forgiven me so much. In fact, throughout the New Testament, the basis for our forgiving is always that we've been forgiven in Christ. Always. Not that the other person deserves forgiveness or even asks forgiveness, but that we have been forgiven so much in Christ, we have a duty to release that debt to God. Let God work it out. And I would argue that's probably the most significant personal issue that some of you are dealing with right now. And even as I say that, you may just remember that hurt or that wound and anger comes up inside of you and your desire for justice and retribution becomes so strong in that moment that you can't even imagine what reconciliation would look like and you think there's nothing that could change the situation and you know you are absolutely right. Nothing can change the situation. But God, right? And maybe God's place to start is with you, just opening up your heart to be be willing to release, be willing to forgive. And maybe the biggest change that has to happen, that relationship, maybe it can't be fixed. Maybe the, the wound is so deep and so long that you shouldn't trust again, but you have to become a forgiving person. Because you don't want to end your life bitter and shriveled up. And those really are the only two paths you have to choose. Right? To become that gracious, kind, forgiving person where legitimate wrongs have been done and you said, I release, I release that debt. I release that debt. And that may be the struggle that you have this morning. You've got to release it. One of the most frequently asked questions uh, that I, I get whenever I talk about this topic is this. Well, what if the other person doesn't want to reconcile? Well, again, I'd say Romans chapter 12 applies. So far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Reconciliation means both parties move towards something. And you may, you may be willing to move and the other party is not willing to move. You don't have control over that. But what you can do is you can forgive. You can still release the debt. Sometimes relationships, they just... They don't fit back together, and you don't have power over that. An interesting little illustration from Paul's life, actually. Uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 36 to 39. Paul and Barnabas had been best of friends. They had traveled the world together, sharing the gospel. They had lived together literally for years, and they were about to start their next missionary journey. And Barnabas says, I want to bring along my cousin John Mark. And Paul says, absolutely not. He ditched us last time, right? I'm not bringing him again. 
I don't care if he is your cousin. He's lousy. He's of no use to us. He'll betray us again. I don't want you, I'm Mark. Barnabas says, no, Barnabas, son of encouragement. Let's bring him along again, right? Paul, hard driver. Barnabas, lover. Ah, no, no, love, let's love him. Let's, re- let's figure this out. Let's make it work. And the disagreement we're told in Acts became so sharp that they said, I'm out. Paul goes, I'm going left, you go right. And they didn't see one another for years. But at the very end of Paul's life, he says, would you send for John Mark? Because he's really useful to me. Would you, would you bring John Mark to be with me? Right? It may take years. But are you just are you willing to open that door for forgiveness and reconciliation? If you're willing, then God can do really amazing and beautiful things. And then the result is, you know, the unity gets restored in the body of Christ and our testimony becomes so much more powerful because we will have conflicts, church. Inevitable. You can't stop them but we can respond to them differently and respond in a way that we demonstrate we have a love for one another that's rooted in the love Jesus gave us. And it's transcendent over all of our conflicts. It's different. And you know what? The world wants that really badly, and the world needs that really badly. It's a very attractive thing. So application, let me give you uh, three thoughts as I close in prayer, see what applies to you, or maybe there's something else. But it may be that you need to release a debt. You know, Maybe you need to forgive someone, or maybe you just need to not pick it up and say, really? I'm just stirring it up more and I should just let it go. Or maybe it was a deep wrong and it's time for you to begin releasing the debt. Or maybe you need to be reconciled to someone and God's saying, get up. As soon as you walk out of here, I want you to make a phone call, send that email, send that text and say, can we work toward reconciliation because you are really important to me. Or maybe you're seeing something going on and God's calling you to step in and that's spooky and that's scary and you need to pray about it. But maybe God's saying, I want you to help these people reconcile so that unity can be restored and the testimony of the church can be restored and you're the person for this job. So as I close in prayer, I'd like you to just take a few moments quietly before the Lord and ask God, what is he calling you to do in this moment? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we understand that uh, probably for many of us here, there's some really deep hurts and wounds in our heart, and only your Spirit can heal those. And I pray uh, for each person who's experiencing that even in this moment and is, is re- reliving in their, their minds the, the offense against them, I pray that your Spirit would give them uh, courage to forgive and maybe even courage to reconcile I pray, Father, that if there are conflicts that have just been simmering here, that uh, we would see them healed and, and forgiveness offered and peace restored. And I pray, Father, you would protect our church from Satan's attacks. We are not ignorant of his schemes that he just wants to steal and kill and destroy, particularly by creating division and dissension among us. Father, guard us from his attacks. Makes our, make our witness powerful for Jesus in this community. And I want to pray for each and every one of us as we enter into this holiday season with Thanksgiving, that uh, as we go home and we're in relationships that maybe uh, need, need some fixing at home, that we would enter in as genuine servants, that we would have the mind of Christ, we would surrender our rights, and that we would show Jesus, not just in, in the words that we speak, but in the way that we love our family this holiday season. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Thanksgiving.